When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Run to Old Navy for revolutionary prices on summer's most stylish shorts. Tomorrow only, they're all 50% off for the whole family. All your favorite shorts, denim, linen, all of them. All shorts are 50% off tomorrow only. Run to Old Navy. Valid 630 excludes active. Welcome to Real Jam Radio. So happy to have you with us for this episode, which is sponsored by SeatGeek. And my guest is Nate Duncan, frequent co-host on the Dunked on Basketball podcast, friend of mine. And the reason we did this now is because it is actually the one-year anniversary of the first Dunked on Basketball podcast. It was recorded on April 12th, released on April 13th, and largely because I'm OCD about this sort of thing, it's actually going to be the same pattern for this. So this was recorded on the 12th, released on the morning of the 13th. And really fun conversation. The first about half of it is, you know, how the show started, what we wanted to do with that, and how we make each show, we talk a little bit about that just because I thought that'd be an interesting conversation for people just on how we prep and things like that. And then we move, start talking about ourselves and start talking about basketball, talk about the jazz and a couple of kind of big picture ideas with the league and the playoffs coming up. And the conversation's a lot of fun. It runs about an hour. I hope you enjoy it. Thanks so much for coming on. Yeah, absolutely. We were just talking before we started that the last time I've been on was trade deadline of 2015 and it is also actually the first podcast i ever went on which was like january of 2014 i want to say i remember we talked about the pacers being like 36 and 5 or whatever it was at the time yeah it's funny to think about that now just because we've talked in so many other venues about this sort of stuff but what i wanted to do now and part of the reason that the podcast is this specific day is that Today is the one-year anniversary of when we recorded the first Dunked On, and when this is released will be the one-year anniversary of when we released the first one. And I guess the place to start is, for you, because it is, of course, named after you, is how do you conceive of how this started? Well, probably the it started when I first went on your podcast. I remember I was being, you know, just incredibly nervous. It's a good thing that you edited pretty heavily, because it probably would have sounded, would have sounded terrible. But, you know, I think the biggest thing was... You know, I started writing in 2012, and that year I also like moved into apartment in San Francisco, and I was working in Walnut Creek, so I had about a 45 minute commute each way, like through through the East Bay, you have to go across the bridge, through the the tunnel that goes down from Four Lanes to Two Bay, or people know what I'm talking about, and so I needed some audio entertainment, and you know, I was listening to podcasts, but I had always run out, and at that time I, I was working, you know, I couldn't watch games every night. And I was hoping, like, is there a podcast? There's got to be a podcast out there that just tells me what I missed, you know, keeps me up to date on the NBA when I don't have time to, like, read or or watch games for six hours a night. And I looked and looked and looked, and I could never find it. And so that's how you and I started having the conversations about maybe trying to do something that recorded at night that was like a daily NBA podcast. And I'm not sure. I think we talked about this in the early days, but I actually had considered doing a daily basketball podcast as well, but I didn't feel comfortable with my own kind of background, let's say, or my, my the time commitment that it would take to do that. I actually believed that a daily basketball podcast would absolutely work. I thought that there was a way with the concept, and then when you came to me with the idea, 
I really gravitated to it because I'm like, not only is this the right idea, I had sported it before, but I felt that it was the right, it was the right person to do it. And that was why I kind of went onto it with my full enthusiasm. Yeah. In fact, I was doing my taxes and I went through and, and looked at receipts. I, IRS, I did not actually deduct for this, but I saw that we, I had a bill for uh, Kingfish in like early January of 2015, which is this absolute like crap hole bar in, in Oakland that we somehow ended up at, I think after a game. And we talked a lot about doing it when we were there. And then it kind of evolved, you know, over like the next two or three months as we kind of got things into shape so yeah i mean it's been uh it's been awesome it's been uh i never dreamed that you know six months after starting it i would not be a lawyer anymore and you know would be using the podcast as my primary business well and one other thing kind of that helped set this up is that the reason we had that conversation in january is that i actually moved to dc the next day i moved to dc i i had a, i had a job that we won't discuss and it, it went and then when that kind of when i decided that that wasn't going to be my long-term thing it wasn't a motivation for returning but one of the benefits was that it made this more possible from my end because we had kind of talked about it. And I, when I was living on the East Coast, I went, oh, this is completely impossible to do when you live there. It's really only a West Coast or certain international market things that's really possible. Yeah, and I guess we, we maybe got lucky because the fact that I had a day job meant that most of the time I was just going to have to record at night. And that was the only time. And so the gimmick of the podcast was supposed to be that we would be there for people on the East Coast when they wake up in the morning talking about the previous night's games. And so I, I moved actually, you know, much closer to work. I used that extra hour and a half that I had during the day, essentially to start recording the podcast. And the audio quality was perfect from the beginning. That was, that was a big, big part of our success. No, no, no bigger, no bigger part of our success than the resounding audio quality. <laughs> yeah, it was, uh, I, I think I was, the apartment I was living in at the time was like all wood floors, you know, basically like a, a huge studio. It was not good to begin with, but we actually soon became clear that that was actually pretty important to listeners. We tried to improve things. Yeah, that's one of the funniest parts is that there have been all these changes and people say this stuff. The funniest to me was when people say, oh, Nate should get a mic like Danny's when at the same, at that time we had identical mics and now you have a better one than I do, but I happen to live, I happen to live in a place that is entirely carpeted and has much better I guess you would say acoustics for that. But so so it's kind of evened out, though I'm looking at getting something better yeah. mic-wise. Danny does not live in like a remote cave or something like in the mountains, by the way, in case you guys were wondering. <laughs> no, just remote in a different sense, not remote in terms of a cave. Yeah, I think that one of the other things that really helped us and that surprised me in terms of the speed with which it kind of grew was the timing that just happened to kind of be serendipity of starting it in mid-April when a lot of the other big fish in the sports media world are a little bit dormant. Yeah, well, and I think we're probably also got lucky that the thing with Bill Simmons happened pretty much right after we started the show, and a lot of people were kind of looking for a, more NBA content around that time, you know, with Bill Simmons uh, moving on from ESPN. I think that probably helped a lot as well. Yeah, certainly. I think that's and, something fair. And also, I mean, our, the support we had from Real GM at, at the beginning also, and, and Chris Reyna, he was fantastic also in supporting us, letting us host it on Real GM's server to start with, you know, letting us put that put it in the wiretap to kind of get the initial word out so that there was enough momentum initially that, like, people could kind of start talking about the show. Well, and originally it was in the Real Jam radio feed, and that led to some kind of hilarity on my end because... 
when it was in there, the podcast got more reviews than it ever did when it was just my own. And then it was that awkward thing when Dunked On became its own thing, which was always the goal. But once we actually got the approval from iTunes and all that, that it was kind of all these reviews of something that now was not a part of the podcast anymore. Yours is just like a separate thing, though, you know, it's, and obviously I, I really enjoy that as well. It's actually edited, which definitely makes it better in some ways, to be sure. But yeah, I don't know. I mean, I guess we don't, have, you know, pat ourselves on the back for too much more no. about the show. But since uh, you wanted to ask about it, and a year anniversary, I think yesterday was the 216th episode over the course of a year, wow. which is, it's pretty crazy. I mean, it's almost like a full-time job, I guess, huh? But yeah, I just feel really lucky and, and thankful to you and, and Real GM and, and everyone else who's helped out that like this could actually like become my dream and be like how I'm making my living now. It's It's been wonderful. Before we continue the conversation, I wanted to say a quick word about SeatGeek, the inaugural sponsor of Real GM Radio and my go-to for buying and selling tickets. I actually was in the ticket business as a broker buying and selling tickets for my for my job a long time ago, and I wish that SeatGeek had been around like it is now because it is my go-to for this sort of thing for a couple different reasons. It is an aggregator, which means that it puts all of the tickets that are available various places in one place so you don't have to worry about missing out on something. And also because of the way that they handle fees, you get to actually compare listings apples to apples. So you don't have to worry about getting hit with bigger fees on one or something like that. You know the price going in and you can compare things fairly. And also they give a deal score, which is useful for buyers because you can know if they think a ticket is a good deal or a bad deal. And it's also useful for sellers because if they think your tickets are a bad deal, they're probably not going to sell. So that is, it's a great program. You should definitely use it. And it's even sweeter right now because you can use the promo code REALGM, R-E-A-L-G-M, and you can get $20 rebate off your first purchase. So how that works is you download the free SeatGeek app, you go to the settings tab, you click add a promo code, and you put in REALGM. And then you get, when you make your first purchase, you get $20 back. It's perfect. You get to try out something new for free. You get, hopefully get some great tickets to something coming up, NBA playoffs, whatever you want to do. And you get to experience SeatGeek and hopefully you come back to it. And by doing it that way, you show that you came from Real Jam Radio and tell SeatGeek that they should keep doing business with us, which is wonderful. So SeatGeek, download the app, Real Jam promo code, and about $20 off your first purchase. Now back to the conversation. It's been thrilling to be along for the ride, but the one other thing about Dunked On that I wanted to do was kind of give people a basic idea of not how we do the show in terms of, you know, there isn't really a behind the curtain in terms of things like it, but I think people would be interested just in kind of how, how we do it just at a really basic level. Yeah, so, you know, we usually plan episodes about a, a couple weeks out. Sometimes, you know, we'll be on the road. It's not feasible to record that night, so we'll plan it out, you know, if it, I'll have maybe like one non-Danny guest on per week, and that those will usually be recorded during the day because you know most people are not completely insane like we are and are not happy recording at you know 11 p.m. Pacific time. But then you know if we're doing like a game wrap-ups episode or you know I just have a Google Doc called Podcast Plan that Danny and I both have access to, and you know throughout the games with the games going on, we'll just make our notes in there, try to organize them as best we can, probably. After the games are over, we'll maybe spend about an hour putting together stats and uh, trying to, to decide what we want to talk about, G-chatting about what we want to talk about, putting everything in order, and then uh, just fire away on the show. One of the things I think that has helped us a lot is the is that we both, and you're, of course, much more prolific and better at it with live tweeting, is that that can, in certain circumstances, provide part of the outline. So if we, whether it's digging stuff out or just having the core ideas that then become the podcast. 
Yeah, I, the whole thing about live tweeting that I even started doing that was I, I felt like, hey, you know, I'm making notes on all these plays. Why don't I just tweet them out and see what people think? And, you know, maybe it's going to be too much for some people, but I think it, enough people have thought that it was useful that, you know, the follower account isn't decreasing at least. That's a good sign. Uh, I mean, we've gotten a few comments that like, hey, you tweet too much. And yeah, you know, probably. But on the other hand, I probably like would not have the number of Twitter followers or listeners if I didn't do that. I mean, you have to acknowledge that maybe both the Twitter feed and Dunked On itself is always going to be kind of a niche thing for very detail-oriented people. Yeah, I mean, one of the understandings that I got in in this business being around it kind of a while now is that you're never going to make everyone happy. And the funniest part is that a lot of people feel that their opinion, whichever way it is, and all opinions are legitimate in that sense, feel that it is more universal than it is. I mean, you can think about anything, whether it be, you know, the theme song, whether it be what what we talk about, what we tweet about, almost anything is, is you could call it divisive in that way, but no opinion is uniform. Uh, yeah, should should we like say what the origin of the theme song was? I, I think I think some people would like to know that. Sure. So started with Real Jam Radio. It is one of my childhood friends, Jared Trace, and um, one of his one of his music partners, Stuart, who I gave. I, I basically said, "Hey, I'm looking for something." I think it was the first like four or five episodes of Real GM didn't do it. And while my idea was to kind of do something like the theme song for a Nintendo game, that was never conveyed to Jared before he composed it and then before they recorded it. And then that's basically what came out. And I'm just sitting there like, oh my God, this is amazing. This is exactly what I was looking for. And then that became a part of the show. And then when real when dunked on was a part of the real jam radio it got it got the intro because it was a part of it and then when it separated we discussed it and you said you wanted to have it and the feedback generally has been positive though of course there is a lot of intensity on both sides of the theme song discussion <laughs> yeah I, i'm trying to think of like what some of the more colorful reviews or, or or tweets have been one of them was like a techno song from like a seventh grade dance in 1993 or something like that. Like, you know, or I, I, don't, I, I can't remember what some of them are, but then there's other people who like send in YouTube videos of like their roommates, like dancing to the music. I haven't but, seen that. You need to send that to me. Oh, come on. Yeah. No, I sent that to you. This I, is like, I, it was like, you know, six months ago or something. Okay. I'll, I'll have to dig it out then. But yeah, it's, and, and it's funny also because, you know, I like have, having mutual friends who talk to us offline about it. And I think generally speaking, the people we know enjoy it consistently. And I think that helps me. I would keep it on real GM radio forever. And of course you can make your own decision, but I personally love it. Yeah. I, I cut it down to 10 seconds. I think like thir- the 30 seconds might be a little bit long for a daily podcast when you really, when you have to listen to it five times a week. But you know, I, I think the 10 seconds or so is enough for, for people to, truly understand the glory of it one other thing people sometimes talk about with dunked on is oh why don't you do more episodes like the um one of the one of my favorite ones that we did was the all aesthetic and anti-aesthetic teams with jason concepcion was the kind of the arbiter of that and the answer from my perspective is when we think of those concepts we do them it's just that those are really hard to think of well it's also that i don't really enjoy having fun i think that's another part of it that that goes without saying (laughs) no but that said I think there are other podcasts that do that kind of stuff better. And while that one, we, we thought of it and, and it seemed like a fun concept that the bread and butter is just, you know, getting great information to people. Like that's what we're striving to do. And we want to fill up your head. And yeah, you know, I, I guess I just kind of take things seriously. It's not that, you know, we don't have these thoughts about ridiculous things that 
we could be doing, we meaning you. Yeah. But I think that it, it's just that's not quite what the niche of the show is and that we would just be kind of trying to do stuff that other shows are doing better than ours anyway. So better to focus on an MBA student would say is your core competency. Yeah. And I, I have a lot of respect for there's so much great content that is out there. And I, I've always been very cognizant of trying to do something well and try to do something a little bit different and ideally do it better than anybody else is doing. And I think that's part of what I'm proud of with us is that we've, we've kind of done that to a degree, but also, you know, branched out when we can. I, Agree with that. Well, so, one one yeah. question for you, since you're since you're kind of more of a rain man on this sort of thing. I'm assuming you came up with the idea of thirty and sixty, but do you remember specifically? Yes, I think it was. I think it was me. Although, and then we changed it to fifteen and sixty. I mean, I think it was. I, I don't know if it was just like me out of the blue. I, like a lot of these things just happen because like we're having discussions about it, and you might have said, "Hey, you know, maybe we should do something where we look at like all the teens regularly or or, or something like that." And, and it w- probably. Uh, one of the biggest things that we pride ourselves on and part of why it's kind of annoying that like people are like, Oh, they focus on the warriors too much is because we, I think we make more of an effort than just about anyone to make sure that we're talking about, you know, games between teams, that, especially early on in the season. I mean, as you get more quarters of playoff races, like, I'm sorry, like we're not going to talk about the, the nets and the suns at this point in the year when they're just like clearly tanking and it's barely NBA basketball. But you know, throughout the year, I mean, I am fascinated by, you know, what makes teams win, what makes teams lose, how you improve your team at all aspects of the success cycle, who's going to be good. And so I love trying to keep up as much as possible on all the teams and doing the 15 and 60, as well as making sure that, you know, we do game wrap ups on a lot of the teams in the league pretty regularly is that it forces you to do that. So that's a big reason that I, I really enjoyed that concept. And I think it's important too to just try and establish some street cred with you know fans of the magic or something fans who feel like you know their team gets short shrift and you know if i'm going to talk about their team when they're good i probably needed to be following them when they're bad too yeah and that all is something that i think you and i always connected on because even though i started with with real gm you know and i was covering the words with a credential back in 2009 i always considered myself more of a national writer i was always interested in other teams pretty much just as much as the warriors that helped that they were garbage then Interesting, interesting garbage, <laughs> but garbage nonetheless. And so I, I think that both of us always were interested in that. And I think that that really gave it a kind of a, a credence in that way is that we it isn't something new for us. We both always cared about these teams. And, you know, if Orlando is a good example, if they would have been better this year, we would have talked about them more. And I think that actually leads into just actually talking about basketball. Something we did last night on the show is we eulogized the Jazz a little bit. And when we were both randomly awake at 3 a.m., something that I looked at a little bit is that the Jazz clutch defense this year, crunch time meaning five points or less in the last five minutes, they allowed about 120 points per 100 possessions this year, and I think it was about 106 last year. And it's amazing that even though that's only five minutes in a game, that probably, beyond all the other things they could have done, made the difference between them playing in mid to late April and not playing in mid to late April. Yeah, it's true, and it is somewhat inexplicable. Uh, Maybe you chalk that up to them being young, you could chalk that up maybe a little bit to the fact that Quinn Snyder often would go away from Rudy Gobert at the end of games, although I don't think they were really that much better by those statistics with him on the, on the floor either. I'm going from memory on they, that. They weren't. It was almost identical, actually. 120.1, 120.6, sorry. Yeah, yeah. Although, I mean, you're still in that other half of the... How many minutes was he on and how many was he off? Do you remember? I think it was about 50-50, actually. Yeah, Something like so, that. And now part of that is because he missed 20 games, but 
you know, I think he should have been on the floor for every single clutch minute, at least on defensive possessions. Well, he makes free throws too. Yeah. Well, I mean, he. I think they only really did hack a Gobert. Hack Gobert? Hack Gobert is probably better. In that Warriors game, famously. But, you know, I don't remember that happening any other times in the last five minutes of games where he had to, to take him off. But yeah, I don't know. I, it's not entirely explicable. And, and frankly, there are probably super plugged in jazz watchers who might have a better idea of why that occurred than I do. So I, I don't know. It's really hard for me to say why exactly that was. And a lot of it obviously just has to do with random chance, I think, because they were fantastic at other times. And generally, teams actually perform worse in the last five minutes of close games offensively. And you would... Maybe, actually, one theory maybe is that they don't have a dead bang stopper on the wing or at point guard. And so that maybe you could say other teams just when they're running kind of the boring isolations or just straight pick and rolls that a lot of teams run, when they really locked in on getting it to their best guys, the Jazz didn't have a guy who can just lock down in that way. But but, uh, that's just a theory. I, I, I don't remember like wing guys just lighting them up in the last five minutes of game. So I don't know. Yeah, I think that's that's definitely a possibility. And the other part that we didn't talk about in the Jazz eulogy that I think is interesting is I wrote about I wrote a little bit for the Sporting News inspired by the Jazz actually before last summer, but it didn't get published until after the summer about the idea of the challenge of using cap space spending financially when you know that the players on your roster are about to become more expensive. And while I understand that they were hesitant to do it, especially to add long-term money, if they had basically added almost anything in terms of a stopgap in the summer, you know, added a little bit more talent, they would probably be a little bit better and a little bit ended up being enough. Maybe so. You know, I, I still think that to say that the team wasn't good enough in terms of its overall quality and the talent on the roster this year is probably incorrect. Yeah, and, but, you know, and Withy I, played well in Gobert's absence as well. Like, so they had a guy who did fine. I think their point differential right now is, is uh, 1.9. And that is better than seven playoff teams. If you are someone who believes that the fundamentals like that are more indicative of what your team quality is, then I think that you know you have to conclude that it wasn't like a flaw in the roster. Like usually a team with that kind of differential, it's a forty-five win team or so. You know, it just whether it's bad luck, you know, bad clutch performance. How much of that is coaching? How much of it is the players being young? How much of it is just you know the shots didn't happen to go in for them that night, or they did for the opponent, uh, all of that is difficult to say, but you know, I wouldn't say that management deserves blame. Now, I think there were a couple of, you know, probably four or five guys that they could have gone after with that space that could have maybe been a value contract. And we, I forget exactly who we came up with. I, I went through the list of, of free agents and there were maybe like four or five. It wasn't as you know large of a list maybe as you, you would think of, especially because they would have wanted someone else probably on the wing and, those guys, they're just are always at a premium. There weren't that many of them available who necessarily would have helped anyway. Yeah, and I mean, a lot of those are the guys that we harped on that they should have gone that they should have gotten more money anywhere, like Biombo and Jeremy Lin and all that. And those, you know, those guys, yeah, would have been better if, if Utah for Utah if they had gotten them. But at the same point, they ended up where they did. You could say for a reason in a weird sense. Yeah, Trevor Booker was better last year too. He kind of declined, and and it was someone that they had to rely on a lot with the Gobert and Favors in. I will say that Favors now is getting to be a little bit to the point where it seems like he kind of has nagging injuries all the time. You know, with this this latest knee thing where that he, to his credit, gutted through the 
nebulous back spasms that he had that had to miss 15 games. I can't remember the last time someone missed 15 games for back spasms, you know, so that's certainly concerning for him. So maybe I think the plan for that him should be, all right, we're going to play this guy 28 minutes a game and try to get a little bit more big man depth. And there are plenty of big men available as free agents. The question for them now is just going to be, as you noted, how much are they going to spend? And this summer, especially anything that extends past 2017, when they are going to have to re-sign Gordon Hayward, who will be unrestricted. And that'll be very interesting to see whether they are willing to do that. They can do it, but they're just going to have to go into the tax potentially and, and get pretty expensive if they re-sign Hayward, re-sign Favors. Gobert gets an extension. Rodney Hood gets an extension. Dante Exum gets an extension. You know, if that's if that's the core of the team. Now, if they keep all those guys around and they're all good, then maybe it's worth it. But uh, it's definitely something to consider. Yeah, it definitely is. Uh, one of the things I thought, you know, one of the differences of being, you know, doing the weekly podcast versus the daily is kind of talking a little bit more about big picture stuff, which we try to do in like the mailbags and things like that. But one of the topics that you and I have discussed a lot, kind of offline and a little bit online, is the idea of the issues with intentional fouling. And I don't know, you could correct me if I'm wrong, you would remember this, if you've ever really kind of articulated what your ideal system would be to handle that kind of a bugaboo that the league has right now. Oh, I think just make it the same rule that it is in the last two minutes the whole game. Seems easy enough. We know that that works. Yeah, and I think I think you can have an additional thing for intentional fouls that occur in the backcourt. I feel like that can be uh, that could be maybe even a little bit more strenuously punished, just because that's totally not a part of the game, and Euro fouls kind of align with that as well. Yeah, that, that's a good point. I, I think that you know there's intentional fouling just to obviously put a bad free throw shooter on the line, but yeah, I wouldn't mind if there were just a a more subjective component to it. It's pretty obvious when you're really trying to foul someone. You know, you got to, at the very least to me, you better be able to disguise it as I was really going for the steal. (laughs) You know, if you're going to wrap a guy up or something like that, you know, or there's any kind of an advantage situation, or you even could play it where, you know, you almost like soccer, where you kind of let the play play out. And then if they don't score on the possession, you give them the foul afterwards. That that could get a little dicey. I'm kind of just spitballing right now, but it's another thought as well. Yeah, and also why I like the idea of kind of sh- doing a little bit of a backcourt, frontcourt shift is that it allows teams to make the tactical decision that if they want to play four on five, kind of the reverse Vivek, if they want to do that because they think a guy, let's say DeAndre Jordan, has enough defensive value, I think that's totally a fair sacrifice for them to be willing to make. Wait, all right, explain what you mean. So if you basically, if you make it so that intentional fouls in the backcourt are punished differently than intentional fouls in the frontcourt... If DeAndre Jordan just never crosses the half court line on certain offensive possessions, then you can't foul him without that additional penalty. Uh, I don't really care for that one as much. I think that's just adding like an, an added layer of complexity that would have more of a, you know, some potential unintended consequences. That's definitely true. For, for stuff like that, especially when you're first implementing it, you want to go with the absolute simplest solution. Like you and I, I mean, we'll do a whole podcast on this at some point with Pelton, maybe we'll get Seth Partnow in on it too, about how we want to reform the charge. And there, I think there are a lot of ways that you could do it that would be perfect. But to me, because it's the easiest, because it would be the easiest to implement, just expanding the no charge circle out and then maybe also saying no charges in the backcourt as well. That's actually one that I wouldn't mind uh, because the whole like, hey, guy receives the outlet pass and then someone is just standing there to fall down as soon as he catches it. You know, that that kind of play I don't really care for either. 
Uh, but I think the simple solutions to these things are, are the best. That's another reason why I think for lottery reform, my favorite solution is just make any team that wins 15 games or less ineligible for the number one pick. That's a very small solution. It's enough of an incentive for a team like, say, Philly to say, all right, you know, we got to at least field a competent NBA team. So we're not risking having an all time bad season. And, you know, rather than the wheel where, all right, now we're going to do this for 30 years and hey, we'll see how it works out. <laughs> you know, because that's the problem with the wheel, right? Is once you commit to it to make it fair, you have to go through the entire 30 year cycle. And it makes it harder for expansion and things like that because, you know, if you're going to add that, then how, how does that affect it? And yeah, you, even if you tighten the cycles yeah, that's up. That's a great point. That's a great point I hadn't heard before. Yeah. Woohoo. Um, <laughs> I, I personally vehemently dislike the wheel for a lot of reasons, but I think the expansion contraction issue is one of the biggest ones. And I actually think that the league, this ties in with the conversation we had about schedule length, which made me unbelievably happy because, as you know, that's one of the issues that bothers me the most is this idea that the league is has I think it's been too fixed in terms of the number of teams. So you think that that expansion should happen? I think expansion should happen if you reduce the number of games. I don't think expansion, you know, like if you're going to have the 31st team and you're still going to play 82 games, then you're going to do that. But the idea of if you reduce the season, then you're you're kind of helping you're helping out the balance and the interest because guys are going to play a higher proportion of the games. And theoretically, that might also change the way that bench players conceive of their roles. We don't know exactly for sure. But that that's where it would go. But I also think that in terms of talent, the league is has enough players there, especially with the international imports that we have, that it could support more teams anyway. But I just would prefer going to like 32 to 34 and cutting the number of games down to everyone playing everyone twice. So that would be, let's say, let's say 34 teams, 66 games. There's a little bit of a topic change here, but since we're... Uh talking about dunk time maybe we can just have a, a conversation right now about like uh, brainstorming for a show like uh, on uh, i think on like espn2 last night i've been thinking about doing this for a couple of weeks by the way so espn2 clearly stole it for me uh, on uh the nba tonight they asked you know the panel of who would win between the warriors and the 96 bulls and i was thinking what if we basically did like a series between those teams where you know we had basically one person who was a coach for one team, one person who was a coach for another team, and then an arbiter saying, "All right, who's you know someone who presumably is neutral? All right, who's going to win this game based on what the adjustments are?" Just kind of arguing about what would happen over the course of a seven-game series, and just sort of saying, "All right, it, you know, fictionally, obviously, all right, this is what would happen in game one. This would be the adjustment for game two. Blah blah." It was is that you think that's something that people would listen to? I do. I, I think basically anything involving these Warriors or that Bulls team would get listened to. <laughs> we could talk about what their what pets they had, and I think it would probably do pretty well. But, of course, we, we try to be more substantive than that. I guess it, it also, the question is, do you run that podcast now when they've won 73 wins, or do you wait and, to, and see whether they win the championship or not and then run it? That depends on if Patrick Beverly injures Stephen Curry in the first round of the playoffs. Oh, oh man. Wow. I haven't said this publicly, but I've been thinking about it for the last week, Ever, especially ever since the Rockets came back into it. I'm like, oh, God, if that's the 8-1, I, that, I'm just going to be terrified every second for that. Is it possible that the Rockets could give them a better series this year than they did last year? Certainly possible. I mean, They, they, have, they have Beverly. They did not have Beverly last year. And I kind of feel like the Rockets are a roller coaster either way. So, yeah, they've played lax all year. But who's to say that they can't turn it on right now just because they want to? 
Yeah, now I, I don't think that the, the Rockets' defense is as good as last year, but they couldn't stop the Warriors last year anyway. You know, maybe you could say Harden is not quite as unstoppable this year as he was last year, but in some offensively in some ways he's having a better season. They got Demo this year, although he it hasn't looked great. Dwight has really declined. I mean, a lot of these guys are playing a lot worse, but it's not impossible that they could kind of rise to the occasion. I mean, they just destroyed Minnesota last night. So I, I don't know. I, I mean, I think it's going to be... I can see the Rockets at least winning a game. I don't think it's just going to be a dead-on sweep. Yeah, I think it's going to go five. But also, Dwight Howard, I mean, we've talked about how disappointing he's been this year, but this is really his last chance before presumably becoming a free agent. I think he he will have the motivation to just kind of blow it out for four to five games and just show people why he can still be a difference maker. Yeah, and he has, in his Houston tenure, played better in the playoffs. Although we may be getting a little bit ahead of ourselves, too. Like, this is going to run tomorrow... I guess the, it'll run tomorrow. Like, mo- it'll run tomorrow morning, so it'll be before the before the Rockets somehow blow that game to the Kings. Yeah, that's yeah. We'll have at least fifteen hours for this podcast to sound okay until <laughs> until the Kings beat them. Which oh man, what that would is, you what would, would you put a, the odds of that at right now? Just the Kings beating the Rockets. Just that twenty percent. That was the exact number I was going to say. And then what percent chance do you give the Jazz to beat the Lakers tomorrow? Ninety five. Oh come on. It can't be that high. It, yeah, it's probably it, it's probably eighty. The the Warriors beating the Lakers on the road in like yeah, but know, Co- Kobe's gonna, Kobe's going to get day. more shots. He's going to he might. Ben Golliver tweeted out that Michael Jordan's record for field goal attempts is forty eight. Kobe's is like forty three. Maybe he'll try to go for fifty. Uh, I think he was actually twenty eight for forty six in the eighty one point game. So that yeah, I mean, and Byron Scott said he was going to play him the most minutes he's played him all season. He said that he's been telling everyone to get the ball to Kobe. Uh, yeah, you know, that could be uh, certainly an indication. But, you know, the Jazz also don't have a single guy who can just completely smother him if they're throwing it to him every time. We just talked about that. So, and, and Rudy's you know, probably not going to play, I would who? assume. Rudy Gobert is probably not going to play. Yeah. No, that's a great point, too, because he's sprained his ankle. No, I mean, I would actually only give the Jazz about a 60 65% chance of winning that game. Okay, interesting. Um, oh, when, one thing we were talking about fouling. And the crowd's going to be is going to be nuts. Too. I mean, the the Kobe thing could go either way obviously, but you know, I don't know. And I I guess also if it gets to be down the stretch, you'd know they're really throwing it to Kobe every single time and he's going to be shooting every single time. So I don't know. If if forgetting about the whole Kobe thing where like, you know, it's his last game, he's going to be shooting a time. You're just talking about the team quality. You know, the Jazz are probably 65-70% chance of of winning that, I, w- I would say. So, I mean, that's probably about where I'd go is 65%. I mean, if you're a mediocre team and you're on the road against anybody, you know, it's hard to be a, a huge favorite unless, you know, you're the Warriors or the Spurs. Yeah, and it's not like the Jazz have been world beaters in any sense recently. I mean, they've lost some kind of inconceivable games, and they, w- they will also have at least an understanding maybe of what the Rockets have done. But I, I think that would give them a little bit of extra motivation because I think the Rockets game is two hours before yeah, that's true. So, so I mean, it could be completely meaningless if the if the Rockets win, anyways. And, and yeah. in that case, you know, I'm sure Favors won't play at all. You know, if if they're totally out of it, he's he's still really banged up. They might have some other guys banged up. Any chance that Gobert would play would be out the window. They'll put Shelvin Mack on Kobe every possession. Yeah. So, so we're just. I mean, we may never have this question answered, but we'll. This is only if the Kings win. You know, what is their chance of winning? I guess. One other going back to the foul discussion from a little bit before. How do you feel about foul outs? I'm fine with them. Uh, other than the fact that I think, you know, in overtime and certainly double overtime, you should get another foul. Because if you have, you think about it, six fouls for 48 minutes. So one foul every eight minutes. 
after the first overtime, you're not quite to eight minutes yet. The second overtime, you, you definitely are. So many of the great classic games in NBA history have been ruined by guys fouling out. And, and the reason foul, foul outs occur is not so much, I think, to punish guys who foul a lot. It's to, it's to have a deterrent effect. Like that's why you need the foul out because guys don't want to foul. And, and if you couldn't foul out, then there would be a lot more fouls. Even if, you know, it might actually hurt the team, players in their mind don't want to not play, even if taking a foul oftentimes is the right decision for the team. If we're saying the league year turned over on July 1st, where does Tarek Black fouling out of a summer league game while you and you, Seth, and I were watching rank in terms of your highlights of the season? Well, the fact that I was able to share it with you guys was the important thing. Like, honestly, that was one of the most fun things that has happened at a basketball <laughs> game this year. Because cause you're sitting there and it's like 10 fouls is a lot. And I think he did it in like, you know, 15 minutes or so. Like he wasn't, he wasn't exactly like, you know, playing 45 minutes. Yeah, it was spectacular. And the the fact that we can't do that, my personal preference for fouling out is I, I just, again, you could call me Danny Unnecessary Levels of Complexity LaRue. I would be totally fine with that being my nickname of the idea of giving coaches <laughs> Un- the- Unnecessarily, unnecessary levels of complexity LaRue, which is- an example of which would be that nickname. <laughs> yes, exactly. It's perfect. It's the idea that a coach should be able to elect to basically to give a tech to take a technical to get the guy. They would have to decide immediately to to keep a guy eligible. I think that would be a a fair enough deterrent because that's basically a free point. And I personally would support it, but I totally understand why other people hate that. Yeah, and having guys in foul trouble is kind of too bad. Having guys that miss games is, is or miss the end of a game because they fouled out is kind of too bad. It, I think we would also actually see a lot of coaches make the wrong move by accepting the technical. That would also put a huge strain on the player-coach relationship if it was just like, eh, you know, sorry, it's not really worth one point to keep you in the game, which at the end of these games, if, you're, if there's two minutes left in the game, there's maybe you know five players in the league who giving up an extra point in a tie game in that situation is worth keeping in, I would say. Yeah, I think that's about right. And as you know, manifesting personal animosity is also the core conceit behind my preferred playoff format. So I'm just on board with that in general. Well, yeah, I mean, your playoff format, I I don't like the switching around the to be one through 16. I think that's too difficult. And also, I really like that teams kind of have to prepare and go through each other in each conference, you know, where the Spurs are like, all right, we have to beat the Warriors the 90s uh, 80 or late 80s bulls like we have to beat the pistons the mid 80s celtic or pistons are like we have to beat the celtics you know the the sixers and celtics going at each other you know just having less likelihood of a playoff matchup having to go through the idea of going through a certain team i don't want that to be lost but i do love the idea of picking your opponent and and we did a whole podcast on that uh, as well i think that would actually not only be great theater but also a just reward to say the Warriors who would absolutely pick Memphis to play and now they're not going to get to play the worst team. Yeah, they're not going to get to face, you know, either of them because I would say Memphis and Dallas would probably be the two teams in the West they would choose most eagerly and both of them are now off the table as I understand it. And Yeah, and if you think about it too, you might say oh that's unfair to Memphis, you know, they played well all year, they should at least get a, a higher seed. Well, what do you want to reward? You want to reward being the 5th through 8th seed more? Or you want to reward being the 1 through 4th seed more? Uh, I think that would be 
you would much rather reward the team that's been excellent all year. And it has the ancillary benefit of rewarding, making every team want to push a little bit because you don't reward teams sliding into a different seat or, as I've said, strategically losing. You know, you you eliminate that entirely if you go to that that kind of system. That would be great as well. Yeah, teams trying to manipulate their own standings. You know, the 2014 Brooklyn falling to six to play against, uh, you know, the three-seed Toronto and beating them. You don't have to deal with that any longer. Yeah, it, w- it would be done. And would you be open to, I guess that wouldn't tie in with your idea of like, maybe you have the first two rounds be closed conferences, and then once you get to the top four, then you open it up? That actually is perhaps a, a more interesting idea, so that you're more likely to have the best matchup in the final. In the finals is just so much of a bigger deal than the conference finals are, and I think it's really important for the league that that yeah, people talk about that with, like, Warriors-Spurs, that, oh, it'll be the real finals. People aren't going to see it that way. We will, but other people won't. Yeah, maybe that's true. But I, LeBron I, on the other side, like, this isn't one of those years where I'd be like, oh, yeah, this is just a terrible final. You know, it's not like 2007 or 2002-2003, you know, Spurs-Nets-Lakers-Nets, you know, Spurs-Cavs with LeBron, 22 years old. Those are, like, more of the situations that I think your your system might avoid. So how much of the do you think of your preference for the conference format is based on your formative years being in the Eastern Conference when the conference playoffs were actually engaging as opposed to mine being in the West when it was substantially less engaging? Um, Yeah, maybe. I, I think that's part of it. But also, perhaps also just that you hear people talk about those rivalries in reverential tones. And, you know, for example, and, and maybe, yeah, this is, you know, reading the Jordan rules, for example, like that's probably actually now that I think about it as a, a great question is probably the biggest influence for me because if you read that book and you see just how unbelievably obsessed the Bulls were with getting by the Pistons having lost to them three years in a row that that level of obsession both within an organization within a fan base the can they finally do it you know Lakers Kings was, was kind of another one of those in, in recent vintage LeBron and and the Bulls in recent vintage LeBron and the Celtics in recent vintage I think all of those are uh, are pretty interesting. One of my favorite Eastern Conference wrinkles in the time that I've been covering the NBA is that the easier way to draw the alliances and all that is is with LeBron as opposed to specific teams. Yeah, that's true. I uh, I think just you know I've kind of moved away from being a Bulls fan in the last couple of years. You know, as I've just sort of taken on a more national bent. But I certainly kind of looked at it that way as being a Bulls fan and hoping that they would beat LeBron. You know, no matter where he was. It's certainly clear that the the former Celtics, you know, the the KG, the KG Ray Allen, Paul Pierce guys certainly see it that way as well. Yeah, I agree. I'm sad we don't get to we're not going to see any more of those series probably ever. <laughs> and that actually one of the things that I thought I thought about because you know you and I talk about basketball so much that we we don't really talk about as much as we'll exclude Spurs Warriors and I think we can exclude Spurs Thunder. What series do you just as a basketball fan do you just want to see in this playoffs? Well, I, I guess it was, let's get back to that. But the one question that the first one that came to mind is, would you rather as a fan see Thunder Warriors or Spurs Warriors? Thunder Warriors. I think the games are a lot more fun. But as a basketball nerd, Spurs Warriors is interesting. But like Thunder Warriors, in I you know, I've been covering the team for seven years. The whole time during the Durant Westbrook era, every time they've been healthy, the games have been just awesome. I agree with you. And I would say probably that, the median outcome of Spurs versus Warriors would be more favorable to the Spurs. I, I would expect both of them to lose the medium outcome. But I also think that Thunder might 
beat the Warriors more often than the Spurs would just because the Warriors do not have an answer for Kevin Durant. And I think that there's nobody on the Spurs offense that really causes them that many problems. And even the, the Thunder at times have made the Warriors look pretty bad with their defense as well. Uh, I think that the Thunder big men are much more mobile, able to stay with some of the Warrior shooters to execute that switching strategy. You know, t- Tim Duncan and, and LaMarcus Aldridge, like those guys are decent positional defenders, but they can't really bend their knees, <laughs> which is, is a little bit of a problem when you're trying to guard Steph Curry at the three-point line on a switch. So, yeah, I think it's, uh, you know, I think I probably would rather see Thunder Warriors. And that also would have the added drama of the KD to the Warriors thing. You know, do they, if you can't beat them, join them. Does that whole thing happen as well? I still think that the chances of him coming are pretty low, at least this year. Uh, but uh, nonetheless, it's something that is going to be talked about immensely. And the, the, knowing that the outcome of that series would have a ton of effect on what happens with KD in free agency would also be fascinating. Yeah, I agree with you pretty much in all in all components of that. And the other thing that I've been thinking about, so I won't really add anything in just agreement on that, is that I also feel, though, that we've seen pretty much what the Thunder would do against the Warriors and, you know, talk about how successful it was, whereas I do feel like there are wrinkles that the Spurs have left. I just don't think those wrinkles are going to be effective enough to really make that much of a difference. Yeah, I, I think that's probably right, and we talked about that a little bit on uh, on Sunday's show uh, on on my program. All right, so other other ones that I really want to see. I think... Then this one's going to happen. Clippers Portland, I think, is going to be awesome. I think it's, that's going to be a really enjoyable series. You know, I'm not sure if the Clippers can stop Portland. I know that Portland can't stop the Clippers. So, you know, I think I do think the Clippers will be pretty heavy favorites, but also with Blake reintegrating, and, and I think you know Lillard will probably have at least one just monster game. So that's one. I'm trying to think about the East. I have two that might help you. Oh, please. Pacers, Raptors, I just think would be really interesting intellectually. Yeah, well, I, I don't understand why you have this fascination with this series, but uh, I, because the the personnel. So I think what you do with Paul George and George Hill, like those are both guys who I think can do well individually on on Lowry and DeRozan. I also want to see Frank Vogel as a coach in a series where he probably has a talent deficit like I've been wondering for years just how good of a a playoff coach he can be because they've had these kind of weird teams for a long time and I just want to see it and I think that well I mean he's we've seen them play against Miami three years in a row and and against the Bulls in in 2011 I mean I thought he did a a decent enough job nothing that I was like you know drooling over but I thought he was okay and then the other one the bigger one for me is Cavs Heat I just think yeah, Cavs, Cavs I, I can't believe would, I didn't think of that. I thought of that while you were talking. Yeah, I think that's the that's the one that is, and I haven't. Some people have stated a preference for whether they would want to see that in the second round or in the third round. I actually think it'd be kind of fun to have it earlier, just in case you know that's a kind of series that could be ruined by even more injuries than the Chris Bosh one. Which is, I think, the Chris Bosh injury or whatever, however you want to malady, let's say is being a little bit underappreciated because if he's on that team, I think they're the second best team in the East. They might be anyway. Yeah, it's uh, true. Although uh, the season-long fundamentals w- would not support that argument. They have a pretty low point differential. But, yeah, I mean, the whole LeBron going back to Miami, the fact that he has not played well there since he's left, the fact that the Heat have some pretty decent defenders to throw at him as well, the effect that Hassan Whiteside might have how the Cavs offense really, yeah, you've got me drooling here already. And, you know, I, I really hope that that series happens. And uh, I, I, if Miami, I would be rooting for Miami to fall into the four or five 
quadrant, I'll probably be rooting for Miami to win just so we have that series. Yeah, I think that's that's the one. And it's all. I'm also really excited about the possibility of Clippers-Blazers, which you brought up, because I had been preparing myself for basically the entire second half of the season to just have the first round of the Western playoffs suck. That was just, it just kind of looked because of how strong the top four were. And, you know, Portland isn't, they're not gangbusters. I do not expect them to win that series, though they could. That just is more interesting than anything I expected in the first round. Yeah, so certainly in the in the West. Do you do really you feel much investment see. in Clippers in Clippers Warriors? I don't really have much now. Um, no, that'll be a good series. I'm I'm gonna enjoy that. Yeah, and there is a lot of personal stuff. You know, I think that one of the dynamics with this Warriors team that hasn't been discussed mostly because I think people don't really think in this macro sense is that in this time that the Warriors have been relevant, so basically the last couple of years, they have never faced the same team twice in the playoffs. So they've, they've, you know, they they face the Spurs and lost. They face the Clippers and lost. You know, all these other teams, and I'm sure they still harbor some stuff with that. We've just never seen it manifest itself, and they're probably going to get at least one rematch this year. Yeah, I mean, I I can't remember another time when the line of demarcation between four and five has been so extreme. And I mean, I think is there any of those bottom teams that you'd prefer? I, I would like to see Dallas and San Antonio. I think that's probably the one. Yeah. That's one uh, I want to really see because Dallas actually gave them problems in 2014. Probably the most trouble of any uh, of their, I would still say the Thunder probably gave them more trouble, especially since they just blew them out in that game seven in 2014. But yeah, I, I think that's one that I really want to see. I don't think Dallas has the horses to hold up with, with OKC or Golden State. And so I think I, I would like to see that because I do think Dallas could slow down what is a little bit more of a methodical less athleticism-based Spurs attack. Yeah, I do not want to see Mavericks Thunder. Just straight up, I don't want to see that. But one silver lining, it still, I think, could technically happen, is if Memphis faced the Clippers, it would be fun to see Zach Randolph against Blake Griffin one last time, just to really kind of put the capper on that. Because <laughs> it seems like those guys legitimately hate each other, and I love personal hatred. All right. Uh, yeah, that's <laughs> that explains why you've uh, been willing to keep doing dunk down for this long, I guess. <laughs> Yeah, uh, I, was, I was trying to think of, we don't, I don't want to get too much into this because we're going to, of course, talk about this a lot over the summer, but is there any particular fit of player, like let's say a upcoming free agent and team that you think is like, oh, that's such a perfect natural fit? Harrison Barnes in Minnesota. I like that one too. I like him in Indiana as well. Yeah, I, I think just having him playing the four, a shooter, a guy who doesn't need the ball, can defend pretty well around Wiggins, around Towns, spacing the floor, they, especially with Rubio's being kind of shooting challenge, Wiggins somewhat shooting challenge. They absolutely need someone else who can shoot the ball at the four. He'll be great at getting out in transition as well. I mean, what a transition team that will be if they were able to sign someone like Barnes. Now, you can make the argument that they don't want to have to max him out, that they should wait until 2017. You know, I, I think all, all that is Maybe true, but at least he is a young enough guy that he can grow into that contract that he'll be part, you know, on the same kind of timeline with their core. I mean, I think that would maybe be my strategy right now for the Wolves is if I'm going to use my space this year, try to get someone who is a restricted free agent and is still young and can play the four. And, and Barnes, I think, would be the number one guy for that. And, you know, if you absolutely had to, if you have like a great post up power forward on the other team, then Barnes could just guard the center. You know, and then you you have a cross match in the other way too. So I, I think it would. Uh, and Rubio is a good rebounding point guard. 
Andrew Wiggins would have to actually start rebounding from the three. But yeah, I I think that's, that's the first one that comes to mind without going through the entire list and, and really, uh, you know, preparing. Yeah, the the other one for me, I, I agree with that one. I also think he'd be interesting in Indiana for very similar reasons. And But the other one for me is Al Horford in Boston. I just think that's a, a really natural fit of a guy who can who can kind of balances with their, their weird competing timelines and that I don't think conflicts. Like, you know, if they happen to somehow stumble onto an amazing center with one of those Nets picks, there will always be a market for him. And I think... His presence makes them a relevant team in a way that, excluding Durant, that I don't think anybody else really does. So you would give Al Horford a four-year max contract? If I were Boston, if I were Boston, yeah, sure. Why not? Because hmm. like there really aren't that many guys. You know, they're they're not going to be. Would you wouldn't rather give that to like Hassan Whiteside? And while they have all these young guys that I like, I think that they should, you know, the next two to three years is a really nice window for them, especially if the Cavs don't really hit their ceiling, though I think the Cavs can be better next year than they were this year, that it could be a little bit more open than people think. It's got to be tough if you're Boston. Al Horford obviously would make them real good next year. I mean, but the thing is, they're chasing championships, right? And so, granted, they have these Nets picks coming up. I think part of it, a lot of it depends who they get in the draft, too. If they get you know, if they get the number one pick and they get a guy that they think is going to be a future superstar, that actually would make me more willing to go for Horford. But I, I think if they sign Horford, they're still not a championship contender next year to but, me. But but if you were Horford, would you rather, excluding the fifth year part of it, which of course is an important part not to exclude, I think that Boston with Horford is substantially better, rosier future than the Hawks with Horford. Yeah, that's probably true. I think it's it's kind of similar. Al is certainly comfortable there. He might get that fifth year, though. The Hawks have been pretty conservative with this stuff. It would surprise me if they just went straight out full max five years for him. Yeah. Uh, that fifth year, I mean, that's used to me making over $30 million at age 34, 35. You know, that's, that will be bad. You know, probably even you might get one year, frankly, of like value on that contract before it starts to really, you know, become a negative asset if you're the Hawks or even if you're Boston, but the fact that you're only four years instead of five in Boston helps. But I mean, to me, if I'm them, they have all these assets, their ownership, they've always been about big high risk moves to get championships. They're plenty good right now. You know, I mean, they're kind of in the middle of the East playoff picture. Do you really want to cash in all your chips so you can go from being the fifth or sixth seed or whatever it's going to end up to be three, maybe two, and probably still not better than Cleveland. You know, I don't think that you necessarily do. I think they want to try and keep the powder dry, get someone in that awesome 2017 free agent class, especially if they can get one of these rookies who who looks pretty awesome for them as well. I think unless, and it, you could, there is a risk now, right? Like you could say, hey, we could have signed Al Horford. We ended up never getting someone as good as him. But I think the odds that they could sign someone better than Al Horford or as good as Al Horford and especially better than Al Horford, you know, for the next three years after 2017, you know, because you're comparing 31 year old year old Al Horford going on. I think the odds that they could sign someone as good or better than Al Horford in 2017 are pretty good. So I, I think I probably rather than doing that contract, if it has to be full max, I would probably just try to keep the powder dry and just continue to not cash in cap space you know, I, I forget who's where they're going to be at in terms of extensions in 2017, but I think, think they'll still have plenty of room. But not cash in cap space or draft picks unless you get 
now to a team that realistically could win a championship. I don't think Al Horford necessarily does that for them without some other moves as well. That's certainly a fair take. And the other massive dynamic, which I'm sure we'll talk about on, on Dunked On and maybe on this at some point in the future, is what do the big markets do? Because if, if some of them are actually responsible with their money, then they could be lingering factors. I've, I wrote in my Bulls preview for the Sporting News that they could offer two max contracts in 2017. So what those teams do, whether they can be on the right track, you know, because a lot of those teams are in rebuilding right now, it's going to be really important to see whether they can be if you want to use the word patient, if they can be patient enough to maximize, because that would really hurt a team like Boston, because if they can be kind of one of the stronger teams in the group and overall package versus just sitting there with Miami or New York or L.A. just swooping one or two of these guys, because really it's a, it's always a small cabal of these true difference makers that are ever available. Cabal. That is, that is a solid SAT word. I like that. Yeah, Ethan's not on here, so somebody has to pick up the slack. Okay, uh, anything else you want to discuss? Well, uh, maybe we can save it uh, <laughs> for uh, my podcast over the next three months or, or whatever it's going to be. I, I think I'm uh, about uh, all tapped out with this uh, stream of consciousness for today, though. Yeah. Thanks so much for coming on. My pleasure. Thanks again to Nate Duncan for coming on. You can listen to the Dunked on Basketball podcast. It usually comes out weekdays, so released Sunday night through Thursday night. And you can find it on iTunes and pretty much wherever your whatever podcast app you use. And you can also follow Nate. He is one of the best, if not the best, in-game tweeter. And that is at Nate Duncan NBA, N-A-T-E-D-U-N-C-A-N-N-B-A. It's been a really kind of remarkable ride. And I know Nate's going to hate this, but I'm going to talk a little bit about him. And for me, it goes back to when we started having conversations. And what struck me about Nate was that he was somebody who not only was very good on things like Twitter and, and had good insight, but when we talked, I, I really saw it in him that, you know, this is somebody who can convey these these insights that I, I personally don't feel that I'm capable of in, in a really good way. And so I always wanted to see if I could bring that out a little bit. That's why, as he mentioned, the first podcast he ever did was with me. I just I thought that would be something that he could really do because he's a good talker. And you can tell that now with with the podcasting with Dunked On and everything else. And so just to, it was really a comfort thing. And that was something that was a struggle for me as well, that I I'm somebody who can talk. I and mean, we both trained lawyers. You know, that's one of the things that you do in that and, and everything else. And so it was it's been really thrilling for me to be a small part of of that success and to be able to also to to be friends with him and to see how it has affected his life and that he has earned all of this but that he's kind of made this life that he didn't really see as possible is honestly it's one of the most satisfying things that I've been involved with and the fact that it has been so much fun and so fulfilling for me as well just makes it so much better and as Nate reiterated during the podcast both of our deep thanks go out to Real GM specifically Chris Reyna my once present and future boss and, and personal friend for doing such a great job of being supportive, not only of Real Jam Radio from its start to present, but also for Dunked On to bring that in. I mean, it's a kind of a big thing to ask. And in the, in that time, the technical ask of Real GM for Dunked On was actually much more because we were trying to upload it ourselves and we had to kind of make this new paradigm and we did it and, and it worked out relatively well. And now, you know, we're, we're doing a whole nother system, but it wouldn't have gotten off the ground without the massive support of Real GM and Chris in particular. So thank you so much to them. And of course, equally, if not more importantly, thank you so much to the listeners of this podcast and of course, Dunked On, because that is what really makes us a success. And if you like what you've heard here, if you like what you heard when Dunked On, you can 
download the episodes, you can rate it on iTunes, and also just tell people that you think would like it that they can do it. It's as, as strange as it sounds, that is a str- an incredibly important part of our success and really anybody else's is word of mouth because the person that you trust the most are the people that you already know or the people who follow you on Twitter, things like that. And so if you want to do that, and also if you want to give any feedback, you can reach out to me on Twitter, Danny LaRue, D-A-N-N-Y-L-E-R-O-U-X. Facebook is Danny LaRue MBA, which also has the benefit of kind of coalescing all the work that I do in various places, pieces, podcasts, anything else. Do weekly newsletter as well. The links to that will be on Twitter and on Facebook. And then also I have an email address, MBA at gmail.com. And with all of those things, the promise I make is that I will read everything that comes in. I will do my absolute best to respond, but I, I my promise is to read it. And I, and I really do because I, I consider the insight positive, negative, everything in between. I really do value that. And I always want to make sure that people know, even if they never did get a response from me, that I do read everything. And sometimes it gets busy. Playoffs is a particularly notable time for that. So... Thank you so much for listening. Take care and make it a great day. Make your 4th of July sparkle with a little help from your friendly neighborhood Randalls. You'll find great deals on grilling favorites and more. Everything you need to make any summer gathering festive. For a delicious cookout, shop with your Remarkable card and pick up 80% lean ground beef in the value pack for just $1.99 a pound. Limit four packages. And get a sweet deal on fresh strawberries, blueberries, or raspberries, two for $3. Tastier meats, sweeter produce, better celebrations. Randalls, proudly serving Texas families since 1966. When you don't go to Geico.com, car insurance can be hard. Like early 90s heavy metal hard. I'm yelling and screaming and I'm loud. Roar! Geico makes it easy. You can review and update your policy or report a claim on Geico.com or the Geico mobile app. Because shouldn't we all have a little less stress in our lives? I'm not even upset about anything! Run to Old Navy for revolutionary prices on summer's most stylish shorts. Tomorrow only, they're all 50% off for the whole family. All your favorite shorts, denim, linen, all of them. All shorts are 50% off tomorrow only. Run to Old Navy. Valid 630 excludes active.